0: My friends, it is such an honor and a joy to be able to speak to you all today. Although I'm not able to be with you in person, but praise God for technology that allows us to meet in this manner. Thank you, Radius, and thank you, my dear friend Brooks, for giving me this opportunity to be with you and to share my thoughts with you regarding church planting and missions. As you know, the title of my talk that I'm about to share with you is this. A careful gospel leads to a careful church. And in my talk today, what I want to do is, I want to share with you what I see going on in the missions world from my perspective and my vantage point, at least in my part of the world. I want to make a few comments about a few current practices that are rampant in the mission field, or shall we say at times, malpractices that are purported to be the best Practices by their practitioners. My purpose is not to tear people down, but to help people to be aware of the prevailing mess that is peddled in the name of church planting movements or disciple making movements. I want to encourage people to go back to the basic and simple task of being faithful to the scripture and proclaim the simple, careful gospel to plant simple careful new testament churches as i speak i'll also be making a few assumptions here about my listeners i'm assuming that most of you agree that the work of the missions primarily entails the work of the proclamation of the truth that is the gospel of the lord jesus christ and i'm assuming that you also understand and agree that the goal of the proclamation is to see churches planted in other words for the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, for that to be fulfilled, we must preach the gospel to all people with the hope to see churches planted among them. We pray that all the communities would be worshipping our Lord Jesus Christ. And as they do so, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified and lifted high. And this is the ultimate goal of all true, faithful, and biblical missionary work, undertaken in response to the Great Commission as commanded by our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why we want to talk about this topic. A careful gospel leads to a careful church. It is a bit intriguing title, isn't it? Well, let me expand on this title a little bit more. What do I mean by a careful gospel? It is nothing but the faithful gospel, a gospel which is biblical, uncompromised, clear, not confused, not a shallow gospel. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for those who believe in him. It is about a God who took on flesh about 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect life, died on the cross to pay the penalty of sins of all those who believe in Him. And by believing and trusting in Him, our sins are forgiven. And we are reconciled to the one true living holy God. This is the careful gospel that must be proclaimed. And I also want to expand a little bit on the careful church too. A careful church is a faithful and biblical church. It is a church that has not sold its soul to the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is a gathering of those who profess the careful gospel. They have repented of their sins. They have renounced the ways of the evil one. And they have been baptized upon the confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they have covenanted together to meet regularly under the guidance of the leadership as outlined in the New Testament, to hear the word priest and to partake in the ordinances together, to walk together, to worship together, to glorify God together by pursuing holiness and becoming more like Him. Well, that's what I mean by a careful church. Church. But after all, why am I saying these things to you all? Friends, I've intentionally spent some time stating the obvious. It is because far too often you will hear reports like this. There were hundreds of thousands that have heard the gospel. Let's say somewhere in South Asia. And let's say in the year 2020. Because even with COVID-19 wreaking havoc... In this region, when almost all the expat workers had to exit, and almost all the indigenous fellowships were suspended for the better part of the year, it still seems that 2020 wasn't a bad year after all. And so they, and many others, report that hundreds of thousands have heard the gospel. And that maybe over 100,000 or so were baptized. Baptized. And several hundred thousand, if you put together all the purported reports published by various organizations. And then they say that uh, many thousand, thousand churches were planted. You know, these reports make gospel proclamation and church planting look like a child's play. By the way, this is a digression, but I've been hearing reports, such reports of exponential growth of the church, especially particularly in my region, for quite some time. It is almost as if this region has been reached many times over. But that's a different story altogether. The reason why I am talking to you about this is that whenever I hear such reports, it makes me very uncomfortable It makes me uncomfortable to know that such falsehood is being peddled with such impunity. And I want to push back gently and ask them, what do you mean by when you claim that the gospel was heard by this many people? What gospel are you talking about? What kind of gospel? Was it the clear gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or was it, come to Jesus because he answers prayers? He will fix your life. He will heal you. He will give you what you want. Are you sure that the gospel was clearly communicated and not confused, conflated and compromised? I hope you didn't just tell them some legalistic and moralistic stories and presented Jesus as one who is mightier than many other gods. And he's one among them. Capable of solving all problems in life, but never stating clearly, without any confusion, the simple and clear biblical gospel and calling people to repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope there was no bait and switch tactic involved. I hope you did not prey upon P R E Y on their vulnerabilities like poverty, sickness, and other problems. I hope there was nothing done to cajole people into making decisions when their hearts aren't truly regenerated. Did you even tell them that they will have to pay a price if they want to follow Christ? Did you tell them that they have to deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow Him? Did you even talk about sin, hell, judgment, the wrath of God and repentance from sin? Or did you just undertake a lot of community development projects? And the beneficiaries of such projects have started to show up to you at your storytelling groups or prayer meetings. And now you count them as ones who have heard the gospel and have formed into a church. Do you consider four or five people from the same family or neighbors who gather together once in a while to pray or to sing? Do you consider them to be a church? I mean, that kind of gathering does not reflect anything what we have just spoken about a careful church. Do you count all the prayer meetings, house groups, house fellowship, Bible studies, storytelling groups as churches? Could you apply the same metrics, same standards, same measurement to the gospel work back in the West? I bet it's not going to fly well, isn't it? The sad irony is that all the most faithful churches in the West have a right kind of dislike for the aberrant versions of the gospel and faulty understandings of the local church, and they will not tolerate any of this in their backyards or the neighborhoods. But they very happily accept all sorts of crazy proclamation methodology and weird definitions of churches being practiced around the world in the name of Great Commission. My friends, let me show you how so-called evangelism with the purpose of church planting typically works in my region. Let me illustrate what unclear gospel proclamation is and how unclear churches are planted and then presented as faithful biblical work to the folks in the West. And what I'm going to say is no straw man. I'm not talking about some imaginary situation neither what I'm describing is some one off exception and aberration what I'm describing is the norm the common methodology of most folks engaged in the so called gospel work at least in my part of the world anyway so this is how it goes an evangelist or a church planter who may have been trained by an expat worker or their national partner over a few training sessions with a few Bible studies or maybe a few Bible stories or perhaps how to share his own life story and maybe how to pray for others. And with these tools under his belt, and by the way, this kind of person is probably overtrained in the minds of many folks who purport to have kickstarted or have been a catalyst for or have been the architects of the phantoms called church planting movements or disciple-making movements. By the way, scores of these kinds of superficial short-term trainings are being held regularly all across this region. These short-term trainings are held to equip participants with the latest strategy, or tools as they like to say. These short-term trainings are the in thing because the proponent of all sorts of movements would never want to invest in the long-term intensive theological training as they're too slow and unnecessary and even a barrier for the movement. These tools often give the veneer of doing faithful Bible studies, but the the methodology is to push superficial half-baked, prepackaged Bible studies that don't teach the participants to rightly divide the word. At best, they teach them to pick a verse here and pick a verse there to fit their agenda. By the way, just on a side note, a lot of pastors, evangelists, church planters, favorite pastime, pastime in my region is to go from one training to another for obvious reasons. Anyway, after having undergone a rigorous, intense, deep theological training of only a few sessions at the most, this person will be encouraged to venture into a new neighborhood looking for this mysterious figure that is a man of peace or a person of fe- peace or even a family of peace, which is based on the faulty exegesis of Luke chapter 10 and Luke chapter 4, at, uh, John chapter 4, etc., A man of peace is a friendly person, according to them, who shows some inclination to hearing the stories from the evangelist. They receive the message, who then become the messenger to carry out the mission, just like the Samaritan woman, so they say. Now this person becomes uh, their so-called entry point into the community. You know, all these strategies, all these strategies, they look excellent on whiteboards, flip charts, training sessions and in conferences they make church planting look very simple for them it's a matter of step one and step two and step three and step four and step five you press the ejection button you're done the task has been accomplished but in reality things play out much differently most of the time the man of peace is someone who has been offered by the evangelist to be prayed for You know, in my part of the world, you will rarely find people who will decline an offer to be prayed for and prayed upon, especially when someone has talked to them about their problems and their needs. So in this strategy, the the first contact made is invariably, invariably based upon addressing the felt needs of the person of peace or his family, friend or community. Apparently, this evangelist has never heard this adage that what you win them with is what you win them to. Instead, he has only heard, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, until no place left. After praying for this man or this man's family and making exaggerated and false promises of certain healing, God will fix it all, etc., this evangelist then asks to be introduced to the other people in the community who might also have similar needs and would like to receive prayers. They would encourage them to fix a day or a time where they can come back regularly to pray for them and possibly to also tell them a story. Many times they won't even tell them that these stories are from the Bible. Many folks, particularly in the rural areas, struggle with various physical or mental health issues. And as you see, often the Lord is kind to heal people in response to prayers. Sometimes it might be freedom from a demonic oppression or just a placebo effect or even a psychological effect. Nonetheless, a lot of folks are very happy to have someone pray for them. And slowly there's a group of people who gather regularly for prayers and perhaps also to hear stories from the Bible and maybe do a few Bible studies and lessons, if at all. Almost all these meetings from day one dedicate a major chunk of the time for prayers, for healing and exorcism, followed by testimony time of how God has delivered them, not from sin, but evil spirits and sicknesses. There's a lot of emphasis on power encounters that are said to be the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, do not question them at all. Invariably, almost all these so-called church planters function as Christian versions of exorcists and shamans. By the way, it hardly matters what tools have been given to them, what trainings you have provided them. You repackage all your training as you wish, you call it anything, use any acronyms as you like. You can train these guys over and over again for as many weeks in any kind of storytelling, Bible study lessons. But when they are with their own folks, almost all of them fall back to the default thing that they know best. What is that? Praying for healing and exorcism. They keep doing this because this is the quickest and the surest way to gather a crowd. This is the easiest way to produce numbers or results that their leaders crave for. So when these so-called churches gather, there is barely any opening of the text and systematically going through the passages to study the Bible. There is very little time for the teaching of the word. Unfortunately, most of the leaders have not been trained to teach the Bible well. They do not have any clue about any basic hermeneutics. You give them a passage and ask them to bring out the main point of the passage and almost always they will never be able to find it. Most of them have been taught to study the Bible only to find a command to obey, to find a promise to claim, to find a sin to avoid, to find a virtue to work on, and so on. Very superficial, and sometimes even unhelpful ways of studying the scripture. And anyway, most of the people who gather are not interested in studying the word. They are there for prayers or songs that create a frenzied experience for the gathered people. And the standard excuse and the standard excuse for not teaching from the word systematically is always the same well these folks these folks are illiterate they're uneducated they cannot understand therefore only prayers singing dramas and skits and stories will have to do the reality is that they do not gather because they have heard the gospel and if there was any gospel presentation in the first place, then that gospel has been overshadowed many times over by the over-enthusiastic claims of healing, provision, miracle on the, on, on the evangelist's part, evangelist part, and the desire to be healed on the part of the attendees. The desire to be freed of some sickness, some demon oppression, depression, poverty, anything of that sort. And within a matter of few weeks... Within a matter of a few weeks, the folks who gather are encouraged to be baptized. In a world where superstition is rife and religious rituals are often seen as a means to gain favors from God, it is not surprising that many would even agree to be baptized, thinking that this might be the ultimate solution for the remedy of all my miseries. Sometimes the same person has been baptized several times over without really understanding the real meaning of baptism as they think that they would have some magical benefits from this ritual or this spiritual act. As soon as these people start meeting, they realize that they have an obligation that they must fulfill. There's an immense pressure carried out, carried, uh, created on the participants to take the story or the Bible study, back to their neighbors and relatives and to regurgitate that lesson. It does not matter if these individuals truly understand the story or the Bible lesson. It doesn't matter if they do not understand who Moses or Joshua or David is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the story being retold is theologically butchered. And at times, these stories don't even stay close to the biblical narrative, but has been changed and twisted by the time they reach the hearers. But that's not the concern of the evangelist. All he cares about is that these hearers, his people, his participants, the people who gather together, they, they, they go back and tell other people. Why? Why? Because this church planter is under immense pressure to report back to his leaders and trainers and master trainers or the main national partner. And finally, it all gets back to the main leader who often is an expat worker who in turn is very keen to have updated reports. Why? Because often they themselves are under self-imposed deadlines to finish the task in this specific region. Among these specific people, by the specific time, until no place is left. So whatever it takes, they will do to get that numbers, to get the numbers, because that's what matters for them. Before even they have started the work, they already have an exit plan in place, which they somehow think is a noble thing to do, And they think it is a key component in their whole strategy to reach this target group. Some of the reporting systems are now very sophisticated, with even apps downloaded on the phones of the church planters with GPS locations pinpointing specific gatherings. Everything is driven by reporting. And it's all done in the name of accountability. At the end of the day, after all is said and done, the main barometer of health is only numerical growth. The key words thrown around again and again are multiplication, exponential growth, generational growth, fourth-generation fourth churches, master trainers, movements. And when they use the word health and healthy to describe the gathering, their primary understanding is filtered through these terms and categories. That is growth, multiplication, fourth-generation, exponential growth. Etc. Anyway, so when these folks, these attendees, these, these so-called church people, when they when these folks get back again next week or on a predecided time, a good part of the time after gathering is spent collecting reports. These reports are very specific, sometimes demanding the names of people and the numbers of people, number of people that have heard the stories and the locations where these meetings have happened. This is all done in the name of obedience-based discipleship. They say our disciple must obey, and by obedience they mean how many people you have told this story during the week. How many new groups you have started. How many new churches that you have planted. If you are truly obedient, then you will start doing it right away. And you will not wait to make disciples. It is a classic pyramid scheme. I hope that you know that in my part of the world, most of us would not want to disappoint someone whom we look up to and respect, and we certainly don't want to lose a face in front of them. So many would make up names. They would just make up names, places and numbers, and present them to the leader as the real work that has happened. So one of the unintentional fallouts of such reporting is that all these numbers often are fudged up, inflated, and false, you know, right, right from the beginning. So you can imagine by the time the final figures are being compiled and collated, then what kind of figures we are dealing with. Anyway, the main national partner of the missionary or or the missionary would quickly add up these numbers to his database and declare more churches planted. But in reality, there is nothing but a temporary group of people gathering together at best, at best, for a spiritual experience hoping to be freed from their misery. And at worst, because they have nothing better to do. And so they come. All you have to do is come back after a year or so, and either that group would be gone, or the majority of the gathering would have changed. There's a high turnover. A small core group hangs around, but the rest have gone. The attrition rate is extremely high. It's a miracle that even a few of them stick around. And those who do stick around are often poorly taught, have a superficial knowledge of the scriptures, and they often continue to live their lives according to the old ways. Only surface level transformation, if at all. Many of these so-called believers live two lives... They pretend to be a follower of Christ when they are around believers, but on the other hand, they continue with their previous life of old rituals, old practices and traditions. Very rarely, if ever, they formally make any declaration that they have now started following Christ. They never make a clean break. Many of these do not want to do anything with the Jesus of the Bible, actually, while they still claim to be following Christ. It's almost as if they have inoculated themselves with the anti-gospel vaccine and their way of functioning and the result is very similar to the fate of the Pharisees and the converts in Matthew chapter 23 verse 15. If you nudge and ask Western workers about the theological shallowness and spiritual, ethical, glaring discrepancy in the lifestyle of believers, then they are quick to give an excuse. And they're quick to answer and they say, oh, you have too too high standards. You are judgmental. You are conflating, confusing justification with sanctification. Then they will say, don't you remember the church at Corinth? The church at Corinth was also messy. So if these so-called churches are messy, then why are you so surprised? I mean, that's their favorite line. Well, my friends, this is how the scenario plays out over and over again. All you need to do is remove the upper layers of success stories being recounted by various groups, and then you see the ugly underbelly that is grotesque and filthy. I'm saying all these things not because I have a personal grudge against anyone but because the name of Christ is being maligned over and over again by such kinds of church planting efforts in my region. And in the long run, actually it already is, it is detrimental to the health of the church here. And the testimony of the believers in the wider community is in shambles. Well, I hope that you see that my point in narrating all this is to say that there's a direct, there's a direct, there's a direct, direct correlation between the careful, faithful biblical gospel and the careful, faithful biblical church. I can't repeat myself enough, and I can't overemphasize this that there is no careful, faithful biblical church without a careful, faithful, biblical gospel. I know I'm repeating myself a lot. We could also say, as the title suggests, that the unclear gospel will lead to unclear churches. And that's what I have just described to you. Now what I want you to do is, I want you to keep this scenario in your mind that I've just described, and very quickly for the rest of my time together, we'll try to look at a few passages, very quickly. From the Acts of the Apostles, I mean, basically skim through them. I wouldn't even have time to like stop and look at them carefully, but just go through them. I want us to observe how the apostles went about doing the work of the gospel. Well, as I look at these passages from the Acts of the Apostles, and I've tried, and I've tried to pay attention to what the apostles were doing, and Apostle Paul in particular, I tried really hard. I tried hard to look for some secret strategy. I tried to look for tools. I tried to look for some, some, some fixed methodology that these apostles had. I wanted to see what it is that makes, makes these apostles so success, successful in their church planting efforts. Why was Apostle Paul able to do what he could do? And the more I looked at the text... And as I try to observe the pattern of working, I could not help but see that all they did was that they preached the clear gospel. That's it. Very simple. Very simple. A few lessons that we're going to look at. Number one, they preached the clear gospel. You know, we shouldn't even have the need to state this thing but unfortunately this is where we are today this is what um, this is what we are i mean this is where we are anyway all that the apostles were doing was they were faithfully proclaiming the gospel and it seems to me that that was their only the strategy only the strategy to plant faithful churches what preach the clear gospel that's it so much so for all these strat- uh, secret strategies, all these methods, all these, you know, every few years something new comes up, all these plans, all these movements. It is so simple, it is so basic, it is so uncomplicated, and yet it is so powerful. I can almost imagine if the apostles are present here today, and if they heard us say the sentence, that a careful gospel leads to a careful church, I think they would jump on their feet and they would loudly say, Amen. So when you see Peter's ministry in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 36, or in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, or in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, do you know what he did uh, uh, when he was speaking to the Jews or the Gentiles? I mean, he just preached the gospel. Or or when we look at, at, at Paul's work in Acts chapter 13, verse 4, and then 16 to 41, and then 46 to 49. I mean, there are so many passages. I just could give you references after references. Acts chapter 14, verse one and verse 21. Acts chapter 17, verses two to four, and then again verses 10 to 13, and then again verses 17 to 20, 17 to 20, and then again verses 22 to 31, and on and on and on and on. You can just can't kind of keep going. What do we notice? What do we see? These apostles, they open their mouths and they proclaim the gospel. They had no other strategy. The only tool that they had was the proclamation of the clear gospel. Jesus is Lord. Repent of your sins. Trust in Him. Follow Him. There's nothing mystical, mysterious, extraordinary about this process, so to speak. Not only did they preach the clear gospel, but they also reasoned with people. Number two, they reasoned with people. They pleaded with people. You know, of, of all the people, of all the people, of all the people who could bedazzle, bedazzle the people with their apostolic powers, that would be apostles. If they wanted, they would just go around healing people, casting out demons all the time. They could do that. It is very telling that they do not use those healing powers all the time. I mean they don't do that as they go around And they do not create a mass frenzy To get people to follow Christ They do that thing But very sparingly They do heal people But very sparingly And again for specific purposes For a specific period They do not go around asking people What can we pray for? What can we pray for? That's not the entry point. That's not the entry question. That that's not the first uh, point of contact. They do not try to address the felt need of the masses. They did not use the apostolic power to create or and shock people into accepting Jesus Christ. The Acts of the Apostles, but in in the Acts of the Apostles, particularly as we move further away from the day of Pentecost, we we see uh, very few mentions of power encounter so to speak but they do tell us again and again that the apostles opened their mouths and spoke and reasoned they tried to to convince people of the truth, they articulated the gospel, they spent time discussing the truths with them So, you look at Acts chapter 9, verse 22, Acts chapter 17, verse 2, and then verse 17, chapter 18, verse 4, and then verse 19, chapter 19, verses 8 to 10, and so on. They spend a lot of time reasoning with people. Well, the apostles go around preaching the clear gospel, and they reason with people, but they also use contextualization wisely without compromising. They use contextualization wisely without compromising, which is the third thing. Well, missiologists go crazy when they come to Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 31. I mean, they think that in this passage they have the justification to go berserk with contextualization. And they throw away all the rail guards and even embrace synchristic practices, justifying their practices, justifying themselves from Acts chapter 17. But all you have to do is read the passage carefully without any preformed opinions. While in Acts 17, Paul does spend time engaging with Epicureans and Stoic philosophers, presumably, he already had some knowledge of their, their thinking because of his education and because he was part of the Greco Roman Empire culture. He was able to engage with them. And then he also goes on to use their search for an unknown god to introduce them uh, to introduce to them Christ. But notice Paul doesn't take decades to study the culture before he introduce, introduces Christ to them. Neither does he continue to affirm their false belief systems. He very soon demolishes the worldview right there in their face in the middle of Areopagus. Imagine doing something like that. Imagine, imagine doing something like that in Mecca, right in front of Kaaba. Or doing something like that in Varanasi, in the temple complex in India. He has no patience for their false worship. He goes on to demand repentance and preaches judgment to all who were present. He did not bend over backwards to accommodate their belief system. So contextualization is a great idea, of course. Speaking the same language, eating similar food, wearing similar clothes is excellent. But you don't need a PhD to figure these things out. A lot of these things are just common sense. And if you spend enough time with your people, you will know the worldview enough to show the faults, how they're faulting, and why they need to turn to Jesus. But whenever we do that, a clear demand has to be placed on the hearers to shift their allegiance from that existing worldview to a new worldview. And this is of immense importance. And that's why we just see how apostles went about uh, doing exactly the same thing. They used contextualization, but they used it wisely when evangelizing the unreached communities. But not only that, after establishing churches, after establishing worshiping communities, they were very happy to invest time in strengthening existing believers. And that's my fourth point, the fourth lesson that we see, fourth thing that we observe about the work of the apostles. Number four, they strengthen the believers. You look at Acts chapter 11, verse 26. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. I mean, for a whole year, for with the church, taught a great many people. We see similar thing in Acts chapter 14, verse 22. And then in Acts chapter 15, verse 32. We see, and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Verse 35 But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. To do, why? Why would, why would they teach and preach the believers to strengthen them? Verse 41 And he went, went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Acts chapter 18, verse 23. Strengthening all the believers. Acts chapter 20, verse 1. Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, to encourage them, to strengthen them. And then verse 2. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. I mean, it's very clear. The pattern is clear. Notice in all these passages know all these passages. The apostles encouraged equipped churches and members because they wanted to encourage them. That's all. They encouraged them, because they wanted to encourage them, because they wanted to stand in them. That's it. They did not see the existing churches, or the newly planted churches, as an obstacle to their mission. Far too many modern missionaries see existing churches as a hindrance to their work. They avoid them, they ignore them, and see them as a burden. They will only invest in them if they can help them achieve their targets. On the other hand, existing uh, on the other hand, the apostles did not see the existing believers or existing churches or communities as a means to get their targets to reach their goals in a specific city, or in a specific region. They did not create pressure on the believers uh, uh, to come back with figures, and names, and numbers with whom they shared the stories. They were very happy to just invest in believers, to encourage them, to see them glow- grow, to see them flourish spiritually without creating unnecessary pressure on them to bring back numbers. Number five: the appointed biblical leadership. We see that elders are, um, are very active from the beginning, along with the apostles in the Acts of the Apostles. We see this. And then we see very clearly in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, where the apostles um, they help in the appointment of the elders in every newly planted churches. See, uh, the apostles are concerned with the health of the church. And the eldership is an important element. Biblical leadership is an important element in ensuring that the churches are healthy. They're not so much concerned how many generations of churches have been planted. That's not the measurement here. That's not the metrics. What they care about is that the groups have been planted, are they faithful, and do they have a group of elders or not? And, and not only that, they don't just appoint the elders and leave them and abandon them and go. They continue to engage with them and to serve them, and to encourage them, and to invest in them. And so in Acts chapter 20, verse 17 to 20, we have Paul uh, inviting all the Ephesian elders, and he charges them, and he encourages them to look after their own flock. You know, intriguingly, it's interesting that in this pivotal speech to the elders of the church, Paul nowhere speaks about fourth-generation churches. Neither does he create a pressure on the elders to create a church planting or or disciple making movement. His main concern is that they would be faithful. It is very different from the obsession of the uh, the various uh, movements where they're constantly, constantly drumming up the rhetoric of growth, 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 growth. Apostle Paul, on the other hand, wants to encourage elders to love and invest and protect and care and provide for your own people. What I have often obs- uh, observed, that folks obsessed with numbers ignore the character. They ignore the character and the calling of the national partners as long as they can give them results, as long as they can get the work done. Whereas it's very clear from these passages that the apostles are primarily concerned with the character, the calling, and the commitment of the men who are involved in shepherding and leading. Not only this, number five, the apostles were flexible with the timeline. I mean, as as, as I mean, as much as you'd like to see and decipher the strategy adopted by the apostles. It is almost impossible to know the exact timeline that they had in mind for a place. I mean, we've, we, you can look at a lot of passages and, um, and it's very difficult to find. one 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 fixed thing. Some places they would stay for a few days and then other places they stayed for a few years. As in Acts 18, chapter 18, verse 11, where Paul stays at Corinth for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them, and then in Acts chapter 20, verses 2 to 3, uh, when he had gone through these regions and he had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Uh, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. So somewhere of a year, six months, two years, and then three months. And then verse six, it tells us that they came to Troas, where we stayed for seven days. I mean, it's all different, different places, different time. More than the time, the time frame, the time commitment. I think they were concerned for the people, wherever they went. They did not have taglines like AD 2000, or Vision 2020, or Vision 2025. I don't think they were concerned. They had those kind of taglines. What they were concerned about, they wanted to go, meet people, Preach, establish churches, and then invest in them. Care for them, provide for them, proclaim the truth as long as they had to. And when the time was done, they would move on to different places. So it's very difficult for us to like look at one thing and say, this is the way to do it. That would be a bit problematic. Not only this, number six, they established multi-ethnic churches. So in Acts chapter 18, verse 4, uh, we read um, that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Uh, 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 Jews and Greeks, Acts uh, 19.10. This continued for two years, uh, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I mean, this is another obvious fact that seems to have been completely missed by most missiologists. Again, the emphasis on the homogenous unit principle seems to be driven by the need for speed rather than the desire for theological fidelity. Often to meet the goal, some groups will focus so much only on one group that they would ignore every other group because that's not the target. And anyway, mixing up different groups might slow down the work. But what do we see in the text? We see that the apostles are preaching to the Jews and the Gentiles alike. They engage all kinds of people and we do not see that they segregate gatherings based on the community. Actually, in the letter to Ephesians, Paul makes it very clear that the Lord's plan is not to segregate people according to the race, but to bring them together. Number seven... They were not obsessed with numbers. Except in Acts chapter 2, verse 20, uh, 41, and chapter 4, verse 4, where we are specifically told, given the figures, the numbers, that how many people were added to the church. And after that, we do not have any more mention of how many people professed or were baptized or how many churches were started. We don't find any numbers. It's almost as if the apostles and certainly Luke who's reporting and recording these incidents, he is reporting about these. He's not interested in the specific details. He will mention again and again that the church grew in numbers. They will say this, that the church grew in numbers. They will say that believers started gathering in this region or that region. They will mention that the elders were appointed here or there, but that's all. They do talk about growth. They do talk about the uh, work, the word, word going powerfully. They do talk about the, the spirit going, working powerfully. that's all. But many times there's no mention of the growth in terms of numbers, specific numbers, specific numbers. They do say they grew numerically. For example, in chapter 13, verses 18, uh, 48 and 49, it says, "As many were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region." As many, as many. We have no specific details of how many, as many. In uh, in chapter 14, verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. Again, it's left very vague. And then in chapter 17, verse 34, it says, but some men joined and believed. I mean, time won't allow me to go into every text, but it's clear that the number is not their obsession and it is not their primary concern. They do desire numerical growth and they do have a sense of urgency, but more than that, they desire faithfulness. The urgency to spread the gospel is never a reason for them to compromise. Anyway, I've run out of my time and I have much to say, but I must wind up soon. Some of you might say, well, aren't you just stating the obvious? And at a conference like this, you might be preaching to the choir. And I'd say to that, yes, you're right that I'm stating the obvious, and maybe I am preaching to the choir, but unfortunately, even though it is an obvious truth, but it seems so far removed from a praxis and mission these days. In fact, in some circles, all the things that I've, I've said would be derided and mocked as something very naive and simplistic and reductionistic. And some of them would really be mad at me for saying a lot of things that I've said today. And you know, I'm not surprised that most of the pushback that I've, I, I, I have received or I will receive will come back from so-called experts in best practices in missions. Brothers, I often get asked this question by many people. They say, hey, brother, what's the strategy for church planting in your country? I mean, I want to flip, uh, flip that question back to them, and I want to ask them, what is your strategy for church planting in your country? I mean, it cannot be very different from your strategy, after all. And it cannot be very different from the pattern that the apostles had, after all. Preach the gospel faithfully and plant faithful churches. The irony is that a lot of faithful gospel preaching by beloved churches would agree with what I am saying when it comes to church planting in the West. But the minute we start talking about missions outside the West, they think that suddenly things have to be dramatically different. But what I want to encourage you all today, that regardless of what part of the world you are in, regardless of what training you have received, or what your expertise is in. It doesn't matter. Don't be pushed around by those who reject these simple truths. Don't be intimidated by the claims of decades of career missionary service. And I particularly want to speak to pastors and those on the pastoral teams. Don't listen to any career missionary or even your missions pastors who would say, well, it's different on the mission field. You have no experience about it often they'd say something to this effect. We've been on the field, we've seen how things work, you don't know anything about missions. You know, if you have a little bit of theological, biblical training, you know something is not right. But often, a lot of people, out of humility, and out of lack of confidence, lack of experience, they just back off. It's almost as if there's a tacit agreement between missions pastors and missionaries and the churches back in the West that you keep doing your crazy, extraordinary things out there. We'll we'll keep putting in money. You keep getting our people excited with stories of what's happening there, but just don't bring those things here. As long as we keep it like that, you are okay and we are okay. But I want to challenge you and I want to urge you and I want to ask you if you won't accept and accommodate unbiblical practices that effectively push uncareful gospel that leads to uncareful churches back in your own country, then why would you push those kind of things in our region? Why would you do that? Or why would you allow that? Why would you support that kind of work? Can I urge you? Can I beg you? Can I request you? Would you please send support and get behind only those individuals, only those churches, only those groups, that you truly have the full confidence that they will preach the gospel clearly and carefully, and they will plant clearly, uh, clear churches and careful churches, faithful churches biblical churches because nothing else will do because only that's what we need let me close in prayer father god we bow our heads before you we ask forgiveness for for often thinking that we can outsmart and outrun you when it comes to the work of evangelism and church planting Forgive us for being ashamed of the gospel and not preaching it clearly and carefully. We pray that you will enable us to be faithful in proclamation and faithful in establishing faithful churches around the world. Would you please do this for your name's sake, for your glory, so that you are lifted high and so that you are honored. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.